the name of our living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please have a seat. They say there are three things that cannot be talked about. You know them, right? Religion, politics, and sex. Well, I think they're wrong. We do talk about those things. In fact, with a taxi driver earlier this morning, I do love being up in Liverpool because you don't have this kind of conversation with a taxi driver in Surrey. He said, you should keep off religion and politics, but sex is fine. We should all just love each other, he said. I then dared to ask what he would do if he were prime minister, and we spent the rest of the journey on politics, I can assure you. Well, we do talk about those things, I think. The problem is we don't talk about them very well. But there is something we don't talk about, almost never. And that, I put it to you, is death. When it happens, we acknowledge it obliquely enough, using an impressive array of euphemisms. She is no longer with us. He has passed. I wonder if you're familiar with the verse by Henry Scott Holland, death is really nothing at all. I have only slipped away to the next room. Even when we do talk about death, for the most part, we don't talk about it with any real depth or substance and certainly no enthusiasm, only when we have to. We don't want to deal with it. We avoid it. We deny it. We ignore it. Because surely no one wants to die. And when someone is dying, we don't know what to say. Then when a loved one has died, it's too raw, it's too real, it's too painful. And as to ourselves, our own death, that's too scary. Sometimes even the parts of our lives that have died, whether it's hopes or relationships, they're too difficult. So, for the most part, we just avoid the topic. It's a real downer. It's a real conversation stopper. You'd be a party pooper in a culture that mostly wants to be happy, to feel good, and avoid the difficult realities. I suspect the Greeks in today's gospel did not go to the festival expecting to talk or hear about death. They just want to see Jesus. Who can blame them? Jesus has a reputation which surrounds him, an impressive track record of activity, of action, of healing, of joy. 
He's cleansed the temple. He's turned water into wine. He's healed a young boy. He's fed 5,000. He's given sight to the blind. He's walked on water. And he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus seems to bring life to everyone and everything he touches. I don't know why they wanted to see Jesus, but I do know the desire. I want to see Jesus. I'll bet you do too. Seeing Jesus makes it all real. There's a good chance he'll make everything better. After all, seeing, they say, is believing. I wonder if you're in the crowd at that festival. Is that why you've come here this morning, hoping to see Jesus? We all have our reasons for wanting to see Jesus. If you want to know your reasons for wanting to see Jesus, think about what you pray for. It's often a to-do list for God. I remember as a child praying that I would make a friend that I would get into the school team, that I wouldn't make a fool of myself in my exams. As an adult, the wish list tends to be a bit more complicated. When a relationship was in shambles, I prayed that God would fix it all. When a friend died, I just wanted God to make it stop hurting. Just now, I want God to heal my goddaughter who's been ill for three years and fix the problems in two schools that have failed their Ofsted and reveal the truth in a situation where there might be bullying and guide some tough financial decisions at work and sort out some conflict between colleagues. Oh, and bring peace in Syria and South Sudan and America and Russia. You probably know those kind of prayers. We want to see Jesus on our own terms, to fix things so as to avoid the pain of loss and death in whatever form it comes. Sometimes we want something from Jesus more than we want Jesus himself. In that case, there's a real danger that we'll become consumers of God's life rather than participants in God's life. We pick and choose what we like and want, but we skip over and leave behind what we do not like or want or understand. But Christian faith is not a buffet nor is it a spectator sport. Christian faith means participating in the life and death of Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus sets before the Greeks who want to see him. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. 
and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am there will my servant be also. So if we want to see Jesus, we must look death in the face. To the extent that we refuse to acknowledge the reality of death, to the degree that we avoid and deny death, we refuse to see Jesus. Really looking at, acknowledging and facing death is some of the most difficult work we ever do. It is, as Jesus describes, soul troubling. It shakes us to the core. So there's a temptation to want to skip over death and just get a little quicker to resurrection. So it's no coincidence in this season of Lent and Passion Tide in particular, these next two weeks of the church's calendar, they point us towards death. Because death is the gateway to new life. There is no resurrection without death. Death comes first. But despite how it feels, death is not the end. It does not have the last word. It turns out to be the gateway to new life, to something bigger and better that was beyond our wildest imagining. Facing death isn't always the physical. Sometimes it's spiritual or emotional. We die a thousand deaths every day. There are the deaths of relationships, of marriages, of hopes, of dreams, of careers, of health, of beliefs, of plans. Death is about letting go of what we've come to think of as ours, because God may have something better. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a grain. If it falls and dies, so strangely it can bear fruit and grow. Regardless of what death looks like, it is not the end. Resurrection is always hidden within death. But there can be no resurrection without death. So, to the extent that we avoid death, we avoid life. The degree to which we are afraid to die is the degree to which we are afraid fully to live. Every time we avoid and turn away from death, we proclaim it is stronger than God, more real than life. We give it the ultimate victory. The unspoken fear and avoidance of death underlies all our what-if questions what if I fail? What if I lose? What if I fall down? What if I get hurt? What if I don't get what I want? 
What if I lose the one on whom I depend, the one I most need and love? Every what-if question separates us and isolates us from life, from God, from one another, from ourselves. It keeps us from bearing fruit. We are just that single grain of wheat. We might survive, but we aren't really fully alive. Jesus did not ask to be saved from death. He is unwilling to settle for survival when the fullness of God's life is available. Available to him and available for the world. He knows that in God's world, strength is found in weakness. Victory looks like defeat and life is born of death. That is what allowed him to ride triumphantly into Jerusalem, a city that will condemn and kill him. That is what allows us to ride triumphantly through life. Triumph doesn't mean that we get our way or that we avoid death. It means death is a gateway, not a prison and the beginning, not the end. I want to end by telling you about a friend. Her name is Kate Bowler, someone in North Carolina who I used to work with, one of the most inspiring and able and energetic people I've ever known. A couple of years ago, she was suddenly diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Picture it. 35 years old, living life to the full with a promising job, a wonderful husband, and a beautiful three-year-old son, and a life expectancy of a few months. No one knew what to say. It was so desperate. She felt like even the medics were in denial when they spoke about her disease. But Kate decided she was going to name it and not shy away from the prognosis. She's a writer and a teacher and a theologian. And she has a three-year-old who doesn't duck the big questions. Mummy, are you going to die? So she turned her attention to writing and talking about dying and exploring where is God in her circumstances. Who cares if it's awkward, she said. It's real and it's urgent. I'm fed up of being told that everything happens for a reason. That's a lie, she said. Let's just admit everything happens and face the fact that I'm being pumped with poison. They call it chemo which is about one form of death or another. Two years on, and she's becoming something of a celebrity. Not just because she's still alive and kicking and with remarkable energy, but because the freedom with which she faces death 
is so freeing. It's evident in her articles, in her podcasts, and not only in her life, but all across America. You can read her book or find her website if you're interested, katebowler.com. Regardless of who or what in our life has died, God in Christ has already cleared the way forward. We have a path to follow. That path is the death of Jesus. But Jesus' death is of no benefit to us if we are not willing to submit to death, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Ultimately, death, in whatever way it comes to us, means that we entrust all that we are and all that we have to God. We let ourselves be lifted up, lifted up in Christ's crucifixion, lifted up in his resurrection, and lifted up in his ascension into heaven. He is drawing all people to himself, that where he is, we may be also. Grains of wheat, that's what we are. But through death, we can become the bread of life. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Amen.